Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tech Strong Women. I am Charlene O'Hanlon, a host along with Tracy Bannon, who is my co-host. And in every episode of Tech Strong Women, we have some amazing guests who help us collectively elevate the conversation around gender equity and parity by celebrating the successes of these wonderful people in IT. So today we have two very, very exceptional guests. The first one is Kristen Gary, who's a product manager over at Ignite Group. And then we have Hannah uh, Hannah Feldman Hunt, who is the Chief Product and Innovation Officer over at Army Software Factory. I do want to uh, point out that uh, the, what, two of the reasons why we are having uh, Hannah and Kristen on today's show is, A, it is Women's History Month, and we've got, we've got to do that. I mean, we've got to really, uh, you know, Double pound down. this. And that's exactly. And then also uh, Hannah and Kristen represent a younger generation of IT leaders. And uh, there are, when we're talking about uh, diversity and equity, it's well beyond gender uh, diversity and equity. It, it also is generational. So we are very, very excited about having uh, this, this conversation that we're going to have with Kristen and Hannah. Tracy, I wanna turn it over to you. Uh, if you have a couple uh, intro words you wanna say, and then we'll just get the conversation going. Sure, you bet. So, hey everybody, it's Trace Bannon. I always like to ride side saddle with Charlene for our recordings with everyone. And it is all about diversity. It is all about lifting up real technologists and making sure that we're highlighting amazing things that are happening with amazing people. So I had the luxury of meeting Hannah and working with her um, and in being introduced to, um, to Kristen and realized that that, that generational aspect, there are probably some good things for us to learn. So um, I'm going to start with Kristen. I think Hannah may have a, a tech problem that's going to cause her a, a quick reboot and she'll be back. Um, but I'm going to start with, with Kristen and say, hey, we know that you're a product owner with Appian. You know, talk a little bit or with uh, focusing on Appian with Ignite. Talk a little bit about, you know, what you're doing with low code, no code and some of the challenges you're facing. Yeah. So I didn't uh, come from a traditional computer science background. So low code was super appealing to me. Um, so I got started on Appian a while ago and I really liked it. Um, and it's been kind of the gateway to learn a lot of other stuff since I can kind of set up connections and learn tools kind of gradually as we connect them into um, Appian. But it... Um, it allows for really quick projects, which I'm super into. I like fast moving things. We're able to put something in front of people really quickly, which is probably, I really like that. And we can get people working with us. It's a lot easier to get them giving good feedback and being more collaborative when we can get something into action sooner and put it in front of them and get some real pointed feedback. So so far, I really like it. That's kind of how I got into it. Um, mm -hmm. I see myself sticking here. I like the low code. I like the automation. Um, and even being here a few years, I feel like there's still so much that I can kind of do with it and learn. So I don't feel like it's limiting by any means. So I really like the low code area of things. 
It's it's really a, a growth area across yes. whether it's commercial or or the government where I tend to hang my hat a lot. Um, but I'm finding that in some places there's a little bit of tissue rejection. That could be some parts where of the organization say, "Oh, we need this right now. We need it." Almost uh, here's my credit card, shadow IT. I'm going with it. And there are other parts, especially the more traditional parts of IT, that say, "Wait a minute." We don't need another tool. We don't, we don't need another thing like this. You know, whoa back, stop. I don't want you here. How are how what are you seeing, first of all? And how are you addressing that? I'd love to know. Yeah. So we're definitely seeing both of those things. I think on the front of people having more pushback about why do we have to use another tool? I think a lot of times like a short timeline almost translates a little bit to lower quality, which isn't the case, or maybe a point solution, which also isn't necessarily the case. So I think education on that side of things is most important for us. Again, if we can get something in front of them quickly to actually even just explain the power of low code before we're even into the solution discussions, it's really helpful on that front. Um, And then on the other side of things, we definitely have folks who are kind of like, oh, low code, that means you can build it in two days. So there's the other side of the spectrum where we're like trying to level set without constantly managing expectations and keeping people excited and, and hopeful and like trusting of these low code platforms, but still trying to make sure things are quality and they're done safe and they're done in like a stable, methodical way. Yeah, and there's got to be some sort of. I'm sorry, Tracy. No, no, no go ahead. Dive Shana. right in, but uh, you know that uh, one thing that you know, we have uh, heard a lot about low code and no code is it. You actually don't divorce yourself from the developers when you are working with low code and no code. It is uh, as much about uh, involving them in the process. You're just basically taking away some of the. Uh, the I don't want to call it scut work, but some of the 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 more general, uh, you know, parts of, of the development, right? All right. You're abstracting away the things that can be repeated. Just putting it out there. Yeah. Thank you for for putting it. Allowing there to be a little bit more security (laughs) that's built in underneath and some more purpose built um, aspects to it. And, and Kristen brings up a really good point that just because it's slow, it's faster. doesn't mean it's less quality means it's different. Um, and you know, the S there's still an SDLC. So yes, we can do it quickly, but we still have to vet it in order to get it out into wherever we're going to be hosting this or making it available from a productions, you know. So yeah, those are great messages, Kristen. Really great messages. And Hannah, I see everything. Oh, your your tech is is back up and online. Right. You know, as another amazing, incredible woman who's working in technology. You know, you are someone that I interact with uh, from a business perspective with some of our work with the with the army. And I would love for you to talk about the work that you're doing with with create and the software factories. Yeah, absolutely. So um, similar to Kristen, I don't have a traditional tech background. Um, I actually wanted to be a diplomat. My degrees uh, are in uh, international affairs with a focus on global governance and like international diplomacy. Uh, So very different. Uh, pivot into where I am in in the tech sector now. And it really just came from like a desire to learn and like better understand um, how the government works and um, what what we can do to make it more efficient. Um, I always wanted to work in the government. Like that was something that I was really passionate about. But then finding this like space to actually build software has been really, really cool. And so um, I kind of fell into this role very interestingly. I was I was an Air Force civilian um, 
in an acquisition organization and serving in that pro- program manager type of capacity, got really interested in how in, in how we're building software. And so when I was looking to transition to a different role, I you know the Army Software Factory uh, came up. Uh, I was got connected with somebody, and I you know was employee number three, kind of at the at the ground level. And um, I really enjoy what I do um, in my role. I'm the chief of product, so I oversee all of our application teams. Um, what's really cool about the Software Factory is that we are a soldier-led development shop. So. All of our teams have um, soldiers from across the army that are building and delivering capabilities for the force. Um, and at the same time of that, I also, um, in conjunction with the army CIO co-lead, um, the army's DevSecOps environment that's known as Create, uh, which is uh, basically the, pl- the platform layer um, that sits atop our, uh, our cloud environment. And so being able to have that full spectrum of capability of the DevSec and Ops in one organization is really like, how software should be built. And it's super cool to be a part of that and be able to see soldiers across all facets of the organization, be able to learn and better understand how to build software, utilizing modern technologies and approaches and processes, and then actually deliver capabilities. So I am kind of like, it's kind it's just really wonderful to see. We started out with 10 people, our organization has expanded about 150 people. And so um, wow. just in the past year and a half, so, um, it's been pretty cool. That's amazing. I I uh, I'm thrilled to to hear because you think about the government sometimes, and and certainly no offense, but you know the government has a reputation of not being the most uh, efficient and uh, responsive and agile. So hearing that you have 150. Uh, folks in your organization, soldiers, and uh, I guess civilians as well, but uh, who are actually making DevSecOps work effectively. That, that to me is, is an amazing story. It's, it's, it's really, really heartening to hear. So congratulations on that. That is some great stuff there. I want to ask a question of Hannah, though, that ties it into what Kristen was talking about. Transformation is tough. I always use lowercase t. Um, helping people to build new muscle memory. It's tough, right? It doesn't matter if you've practiced it a certain way, even if it's only been practiced that way for a year, doing something new is, is a little bit tough. Hannah, when, when you are working to onboard a new program, a new product, um, what are some of the challenges that you're running into with people either believing or disbelieving in, in what you're selling? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super funny to to kind of see it. A lot of uh, organizations are very excited that we have soldiers building software. It took actually the first batch of our first cohort, the the concept was very foreign to them. And they're like, oh, I can't trust soldiers to build software. Obviously, I need to outsource it to a contractor. Um, And uh, there are times and places for that, especially big weapon systems that have a lot of complexity to them. But uh, for what we're building, soldiers have the most context uh, because right. they've been doing this job their yeah. entire their entire career. And so uh, we often don't see a lot of nowadays see a lot of skepticism about soldier led software development. We often see more skepticism about like cloud native software development and DevSecOps uh, because it's not manual anymore. It's not something that I can go and do a checkbox and say, yes, you did all the things. It's much more automated and like ephemeral and like things are changing constantly in an environment. You're never just at a steady, like there's no state where you could just take a snapshot and say, that's the way it is. You're constantly building into 
and tearing down VMs and pods and like whatever the case may be. So it's a, it's a very uncomfortable experience in the army to move to this like DevSecOps model. Um, and that that's typically where I spend most of my time. Soldiers building software is no longer like, you know, bad juju. People are seeing the results and seeing the software we're building. I think they're still nervous, but no bad juju. I like that. I like that term. Hey, I want to pivot just a little bit because you said something and I wrote it down. Yes. On my handy index card that one of the places, one of the types of things that you studied as an undergrad was international diplomacy and the governance aspect. Got to tell you, that actually seems like the best career <laughs> for, for you. I'd really like to hear both of you. Um, Hannah, first, if you could talk just a little bit about that. And then, Kristen, I want to hear about your non-traditional education, how you got where you are from that. So, Hannah? Yeah, it's actually really funny. So uh, my master's thesis was around like global terror, like um, Islamic terrorism and like cross-cultural communications. And like, sometimes it really feels like that with the department. (laughs) Do we need to um, beat that out at all? (laughs) Yeah, this is Hannah's personal view on the matter. Uh, But it is, it's like there's adversarial relationships and how do you build across like understanding the other person's culture and then the DOD sense, it's like traditional legacy with like modern capabilities. And how do you like come that together and be empathetic and understanding, but also realizing like we need to change those things. And so I actually was joking with a coworker recently. She's like, yeah, like actually your degree was really beneficial to what you're doing currently, even if it wasn't actually building software. And I actually think, you know, the more and more I think about it, I think, I think it's true. I'm a big fan of um, the book range, which talks about having uh, a broader depth uh, or like weight of like capabilities versus being specialized in one particular area and make, mm-hmm. having it make you more successful as a person uh, and in your career. And I think that's like spot on for me, especially with like my non-traditional background. Yeah. So Krista, I'm going to turn this over to you. You, you know, you talked about having a, an interesting career path. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. So um, I started studying engineering science and mechanics, and it's not a super common uh, major. So what that is, it's kind of the underlying mechanics of all engineering. So I learn about the mechanics between chemical bonds, but also mechanics in a bridge. So it's kind of all over the place. It's very kind of rudimentary across the board. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So it was a really great place for me to kind of start. Um And then along with that, I was really into biomedical engineering. So I did that too. They didn't have a major um, at tech where I went to school. So that kind of went uh, in as a minor, but it worked really well because it's a lot of just kind of systems engineering and figuring out how a lot of different parts are kind of working together. So uh, my goal early on was to make prosthetics. I think that's still just the most interesting thing ever. But the classic engineering route, I think like kind of right out of school, my options were a little bit slower pace uh, of building, of developing, whatever it was going to be. And so I started looking into technology and I loved just the software aspect of it and the creativity aspect of it. Um, I like the user interface aspects of things. And so that's a piece that I really didn't get to stretch much in the mechanical engineering realm of things. So that was probably my biggest push coming in, but it's it's kind of shifted now that I, I'm more appreciative of the types of teams I get to work on and kind of the speed of projects. So uh, that's kind of how I got into it. Uh, maybe at some point I still make it over to prosthetics. I think I'm gaining a lot of kind of good user perspective type of 
conversation facilitating things that would be really mm-hmm. helpful to build a great prosthetic for somebody. But anyway, um, that's kind of ended up here. And I've, I came in actually wanting to just do graphic design. And I was really lucky that my bosses were kind of like, mm, let's, let's try something <laughs> a little bit deeper <laughs> than that. So they sent me to trading. Um, and I've just really liked Appian ever since. And that's where I've been. That's great. Oh, so chunk there that might be relevant to um, Hannah and the rest of the group. So between college and the tech transfer or transfer to tech, um, I worked in chemical demilitarization where we were uh, destroying old chemical chemical warfare, which super interesting, but it was more so kind of at an operation stage. So not a lot of innovation and kind of uh, new ideas, things like that. So that's why I ended up looking elsewhere and, and getting into tech. But you did get to experience them. I call it the, the command and control structure. Like it's very, in some parts of the military and Hannah is doing a great job busting this down, very flat organization. There's a lot of hierarchy and there's a lot of um, yes sirs and yes ma'ams up and down the chain. And um, and that it's it's different the first time you experience it. So, yeah. yeah, well, being a military brat, I can tell you that, uh, that I certainly. I, that. Yeah, you didn't know that? Oh, I did yeah. not. I went there. Yeah, I could, I could tell you stories, but I won't. Not, not in this, uh, not in this episode. Maybe another one. We'll talk about the military tech strong women. But, uh, you know, one thing that really does, uh, you know, kind of perk my ears up when I'm hearing both of your, uh, your educational background and, and how you got into the spaces, you know, uh, Hannah, yours is perfect for, I mean, international relations, you, you're very diplomatic. So you're a great communicator. You, um, yeah, I, I keep thinking of the, uh, of the term, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Um, perfect. That's perfect for, uh, you know, for, for what, for what you're doing. And uh, then Kristen, you know, you are more engineering in, in, in your focus and, and your, your base. So, uh, going into something like, uh, the, the development with Appian has been, uh, I, I imagine that's been kind of an, I, I won't say an, it's been an easy transition for you, but it seems to be a very natural place for you to be. And, uh, and, and I think, I think it, what it underscores is the fact that we, we tend to, move into the areas in which we are most comfortable. We may not be within the particular, you know, on that particular road, um, but we're not, we, we find our place, we find our, our niche and whether it is in low code development or in uh, the, 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 the whole the, any any place in the military that that has some sort of a communication uh, component, I, you know, I, I I can see Hannah actually um, working in any of those realms. But uh, it, it it I am, am I I mean because Tracy, I, you've got kind of a non traditional background also. So and and now you're doing DevSecOps, and so I you know, I have a journalism background, so <laughs> here I am doing this. But you know, but I I I never really did anything around tech uh, with the exception of reporting on it. And so, you know, this has become kind of the natural niche for me, but I wondered, I mean, did you guys ever really think that when you started down the path that you did, that this is where you would be today? Now, I, I was trying to go as far away from computer science. I think when I graduated school as I could, I just, 
I, I think you got unlucky with some professors and I didn't see like really the possibilities of just kind of getting into computer science. So that was more so on my own. I feel like though, as I am here and even I've been here for a few years, like just in the tech realm that there is still like people do really like to talk about whether you came from tech or whether you didn't come from tech. And I just, I feel like that is frustrating because it it's like when does that end when does that four-year credential kind of end for everybody and we're back on a similar playing field so I I like kind of came from tech so it's stayed in the same realm but there is still a distinction to some folks of like that transition there I call that educational diversity and I've I've run into that even still like your undergrad was what and I, I think you guys know that I just recently finished my my master's in, in software engineering, although I've been creating software for a couple of decades. I won't cite the number of decades, but probably old enough to be your mama. Um, and I run into that. It's amazing that we are trying to stovepipe folks based on education. Now, there's absolutely an, an amazing reason to have folks with different four-year degrees in the research areas mm -hmm. and in these advanced areas. Um, but every developer doesn't need a four-year degree uh, in right. comp sci, trust me. Um, and Hannah, this is someplace where you've spent a lot of time in helping you know, to, to change the, the lexicon, change this for folks. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, kind of the, any, any hurdles you've run into in talking about education or the skill sets that people need? Yeah, that's a great question. Something I'm super passionate about too. Um, uh, you're right. Like, uh, especially the way that government hiring is structured for civilians, you mm -hmm. typically have to have a degree to be considered an engineer. Uh, a They call it a positive degree in whatever engineering discipline it is. Even if you are a software engineer and you've been one for you know, 10, 15 years, you still can't call yourself an engineer. So on paper, I am a IT specialist. That is my like occupational series uh, because I don't have a degree in engineering. I have you know liberal arts degree, um, and it's something that's been very frustrating um, for me, uh, like on the civilian side. But on the military side, it's been kind of fascinating to see, uh, especially the diverse set of soldiers that we have in our organization from a um, an MOS perspective or like what their, their job series are. We have uh, medics that are platform engineers. We have um, maintenance technicians that are software developers. Uh, and then you do, you have the traditional um, kind of roles like the, the signal officers or the cyber officers that do have a, a background in software development. But more often than not, we're getting a, a, a large swath of the population that don't have any like formal uh, background, you know, formal career in software development, yet did it uh, as a side gig or were really passionate about it and learned how to build software themselves. And like, it really goes to show that it doesn't matter what your educational qualifications are or your credentials or your certifications, like anybody can do this. Um, there's still a strong impetus within the department that if you don't have your SEC plus or your Linux plus, you're not allowed to touch particular systems. And right. I think it's just old school thinking. Um, you know, there's a level of, of education we provide up front as part of the software factory. They, it's about six months of like, we call a technology accelerator where they are getting a level of practical proficiency in software development, product management, platform engineering, and UX design. And that is um, you know, it's almost like a general, yeah, almost like a general assembly type of course. So they're 
they're they're learning and then they can go and implement that by building software. It's not like these soldiers aren't vetted already. All of them have clearances. They're obviously in the army. So uh, it's something I'm very passionate about is that as we continue to transform who can build software in the department, um, that we're more inclusive to that, not just uh, people who have the the positive degree in whatever engineering discipline. So do you think that your background has also uh, kind of helped you along in making the argument, if you will, uh, to maybe other organizations or other departments that might not really see the value in having such a diverse uh, group of folks actually doing the work? I, I would I would hope so. Um, I don't I don't know necessarily, but I think having a non-traditional background and, and being able to demonstrate like a level of expertise in, in software development, obviously I'm not a coder, but um, I guess like from a business perspective, um, kind of understanding what's valuable and what's not and like really being actively engaged in, in our, our DevSecOps environment in particular, um, I think demonstrates a level of like credibility that you don't need to have a degree um, necessarily. Um, there's so much that's available on the internet, like to, to get upskilled. And then I'm surrounded by really smart people that help me become better every day. So you're never going to, if there are people in an organization that assume they have all the talent they need, uh, that that organization is going to fail. And so I'm always looking for people who are smarter than me that can help explain things to me. And like, I can then in turn, like make help make better business decisions for the organization or better user decisions for the organization. And that that's something that I, I really care about. Cause I, again, I'm not, you know, strongly technical. Uh, I can't code, but I can like, I can certainly talk the talk and understand the environments and, and try to do better. I'm going to say that Kristen would probably tell you that Hannah, you can code. I can show you how come on over to, to, to my world, <laughs> come to the dark side. No, <laughs> come to the low code side. Oh, yeah, we'll so, be doing some amazing yeah. things over there. So well, so, well, Kristen, I, I, you know, I would like to kind of find out, you know, you did mention the, the education aspect and the fact that you don't have a technical background per se or an engineer background. So there is that maybe inherent bias that, that you've come up against within the organization as to, you know, what your, what your level of ex- expertise or what your level of proficiency will be based on your background. Do you think that that's a pervasive thing? Um, or, you know, is, is that, is that something that, um, you know, we're seeing, well, it's something that I I've seen in the past. Um, people just automatically write you off if you don't have the right degree or whatever, but, you know, are there other challenges that you guys have, and Kristen, we'll start with you, but you guys have come across in your job as kind of a non-traditional, uh, not linear, if you will, um, you, you know, somebody who's come up uh, in a way that that's you know not kind of ticking all the boxes, if you will, and even with respect to um, you know your your age or you know you're working with your you know in different cultures that maybe you hadn't in the past. You know what I'm, I'm interested in finding out what you guys have cut, challenges that you guys have come up against in your you know, as you have you as you've risen through the ranks in your career. Yeah. Kristen, why don't we start with you? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think I mean, even I I did even come from a technical background and I still get questioned all the time because it's not computer science. It's I mean, people right. are very specific about computer science versus the rest of the world. So. Um, that's frustrating. It's definitely kind of still something I deal with. It's mostly something I deal with with peers. It's not usually something I 
I mean, and maybe that's, I've got great managers and bosses who aren't going to question that stuff, but generally it is more, um, I know just over the years, even not like recently, just since I've been in kind of engineering and tech. Um, and then Hannah hit on a good point that was kind of like, made me think of some things about that. You've got a great community that you can kind of go to them, you know, they're smart, um, and you can rely on them. That's the area where I feel like this distinction between CS and tech plays the biggest role because I'll try to have these conversations that are very transparent and I've got my whole guard down because as long as I've been around, that's like the best way I can gain some credibility is just being transparent. And I've kind of been eaten up the past few years because I, maybe they assume since I'm not CS, it's not a good question or I haven't done my homework there, but I don't, I don't always feel that like I can be so transparent and let my guard down and like really try to dig in and start learning from my peers. Cause there is that like silly distinction between the two that, that creates like more barriers than I think it should. So my question to you is, so how, how have you been dealing with that then? Because you're not the only one and there are others who can learn from you. How do you, how do you deal with that kind of, ism or that kind of, of bias, educational or not? How, how yeah. do you navigate that? Because you want to be able to just go and have the conversation. You want to yeah. be able to go and say, hey, I was I opened this up. I was taking a look at this. I haven't worked with this particular XYZ. What do you think, Joe? What do you think, Mary? What do you think, Rajiv? Tell me. Um, how, are, how are you managing that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think early on, I kind of had to make a decision whether I was going to shape myself a little bit differently so I could come off a little bit more like assertive and, and somebody I might not truly be, or I could stick to my guns and kind of say, this is how I like to work. This is, I like to make an environment that's productive for this kind of work. And I also saw that like other people were having the same issues. So I, I didn't really want to just bend myself so that I could like hold my own in these conversations and maybe be a little bit more, I don't know, putting on a front that maybe I know more than I do so that I can be part of the conversation. I mean, I didn't really want to do that. So I have just tried to gain trust. I just knew it would take a long time. And I've just determined that that's the, that's how I've been successful in the past. And whether I'm going through a hiccup now, or it's like getting some other folks on board, I've just decided that that's where I'm going to stay. And I definitely needed to have some help to tell me that like, that was okay. And just because they're doing it and maybe their moves feel a little bit more powerful. It doesn't mean like they've got to, I have to shift to them. So I think just generally trying to stick to the way that I want to lead and like be on a team has been one word. Authentic. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is the word for tech strong women, authentic. Yes, it is. Uh, yeah. It really it, it drives everything. So, so what about you, Hannah? I, 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 you know, have you experienced these issues as well? And and you know, how have you dealt with them? Yeah, uh, I couldn't agree more on what Kristen said. Um, I certainly really and empathize. Uh, yeah, I've had a ton of imposter syndrome moving into this role um, when I initially started because I didn't know anything, uh, or it's not true, but I, I, I felt like I was really behind the curve on on understanding 
how things should be and what, what we can do. And I had, again, a lot of coaching and mentoring and support, um, which is very helpful to see that I am confident. Like, I don't need to think that I, I'm not. Um, and I came from a, from a culture that was a very much not psychologically safe. So it was not, you couldn't ask questions, you couldn't show a level of vulnerability. And so here, um, what I've learned and what I've noticed is that if I'm vulnerable, if I'm asking questions, if I'm expressing like I'm struggling or I'm overwhelmed as a leader, that then like opens up the ability for the organization to feel comfortable saying those things. Uh, because if a leader's doing it, that means, okay, well, then I can mirror that behavior. And that can sometimes, you know, uh, you know, uh, not always be great when you're like maybe a little too vulnerable. Uh, but uh, I, t I tend to try to default to that way. Um, I'm a very like honest person on, on how I'm doing. And I, um, it's served me well for the most part. I, I still think sometimes like a level of, I could be a little bit, have a little bit better level of maturity and, and realize some things I should say or some things I shouldn't say, or who do I say those to the right audiences? And I question myself all the time on like, if I'm communicating effectively. Um, but I also just like want to be uh, to your point, like my authentic self and like, that's who I am as a person. I'm a pretty vulnerable person. Um, and that seems to have worked um, out pretty well in, at the end of the day. Well, if nothing else, you can sleep better at night. I think if you, if you go, if you live your life in the most authentic way possible, um, you know, sometimes you're going to piss some people off, but you know, other times you're going to make some people happy. So it's a, it's a balance, but you know, one thing that has kind of cropped up, uh, in, in what both of you guys are saying is kind of finding your way and being able to do that. And, uh, and, and recognizing that that is the way that you want to go. Have either of you, um, worked with mentors in the past or, or is mentoring something that your organization offers? And is that, is that something that you've ever even considered? Yeah, so we have a built-in mentoring program. So we're all kind of paired up with somebody who's a little bit older who has gone through it recently. Mm -hmm. um, but I think probably my most mentorship comes from the day-to-day -day meetings that I have with people who are just a little bit more senior, um, who I'm working more closely with. We have a pretty small company, so I get to work really closely with um, our CTO, Jason, which is awesome. I get to learn a lot from him and I get to work with our CEO, Armand, a lot. So it's, it's very short, short a path between our teams of developers and kind of our leaders, which has been really great for me. Yeah. And I, I rely a lot on mentors, um, and, and like coaching and, and, and pairing. I'm a, I'm a big, like pairing together on solving problems. Um, I've had a few mentors, uh, throughout my career in the department and I've cherished them a lot and I'm not like a formal mentee right now. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, when I was chief of staff at Kelsey before coming here, I was very much the, the belly button of like, oh, I'm struggling. Let me go talk to Hannah about it. And I really enjoyed that. Um, and that's what chief of staff does in, in essence. So like it, it felt good that that was it. And I, I think I get that sometimes here too, um, which is really nice. But we do have a women's group within the organization because we're, we're pretty... In, in comparison, the, in the military, it's about 20% female. So like we're a small amount of us. And so we really do try to like stick together um, and, and, and have lunches. I think we have a lunch this Wednesday. Great. Great. So Tracy, 
I was on mute. I, I okay, have a, I have a question say, for that. I saw your mouth moving, but there was nothing coming well, out. it's because I try to keep myself on mute <laughs> lest I make some noise. Um, you're talking about how important it's been for you to have mentors and, and peer pairing. I got to ask, how are you, how are you paying it forward? How are you bringing others along on the journey? Because you're, you're not fresh out of college. You're on your, you're on your path guys, and you are ripping up the pavement in an awesome way. So how are you, you know, are you mentoring anybody right now, formally, informally, or, you know, what are you doing to, to help others? Kristen. Um, so like we've talked about, I have a kind of a soft spot for this whole like tech versus non-tech discussion. So usually when I'm doing a lot of homework, like recently I had to get prepared for a um, kind of architectural meeting in front of a big IT team. And after I'm finished that and I spend a few days doing research, I'll reach out to the other folks who I know might not know that stuff and say, hey, let's get up to speed on this. Let's take 15 minutes. I can kind of divulge everything that took me a few hours. So then when you get to that conversation, you can hold your own, you can have a conversation. Cause a lot of the time I think it's just building up each other's confidence in those conversations. And cause we can hold our own. We absolutely can. We've like deserved to be in the places that we are, but it, it sometimes we just need a little bit, I think of like some knowledge that we can rely on something a little bit more material that makes us feel better going into it. So I try to just disseminate whatever I learned so everybody else has it in their back pocket as well. Yeah, and, and in my organization, like I said, there's not as many like women um, in the military in general. So like being able to support and nurture the ones that are. Um, and then on the civilian side, like my like, I guess most like concrete thing is like, I, one of my, like our one uh, our wonderful CISO is I was able to convince her to leave Kessel Run and come work for us. Uh, and she's like amazing. And I'm like obsessed with her. Um, and she's probably one of the smartest, most like confident, calm, people ever. Um, and having her in the organization has like significantly increased the, um, like level of empathy and caring. Um, and I, I love that. And I like admire her and I want, I want to act like she does. And she always says like Hannah for president. And I don't know, it's just nice to have like somebody at your level that you can like kind of come together with and, and, and work together both on a professional and personal level. That's you would not be the first young professional that I said, I may end up working for her someday. So, yeah, absolutely. Another woman in my organization named Natalie Weaver, and she's, um, I think, maybe two years out of college, going back for her master. She's just tearing up the pavement as well. Smart humans with really broad thinking skills. I just, it's amazing. Just amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. So we are starting to get low on time, but I did want to kind of bring up one topic that I think it's important, especially as we are, um, you know, talking to the quote unquote younger generation, if you will, of, of humans here uh, and uh, really taking a, a, a look at, at gender diversity in the workplace. We currently are, uh, we have five generations of workers still in today's workforce. You know, we've got the boomers, we've got the Gen X, we've got millennials. Wait, no, there's somebody else in between. Wait, boomer, I can't remember. So we start with <laughs> Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, boomers. Yeah, no, it is the boomers. Are we at four then maybe? I guess that's four. I thought there were five, but you know, anyway, 
be that as it may, we've got uh, a lot of different communication styles in the workforce. We've got a lot of biases that exist in the workforce. And uh, it's just generation to generation. My my parents and my grandparents had completely different thoughts about uh, women in the workforce at all. So I'm interested in finding out, you know, with you guys uh, being kind of a, I would say a rung lower than us, at least uh, in, in generations, uh, what you, what challenges maybe you guys have come up against having to uh, communicate and interact with the different different generations, if you will? I'm going to interrupt that and say that was Go very ahead. tactfully put. Like in interacting with the other generations. Okay. So that's the big question on the, on the, we've talked a lot about different types of diversity. Obviously there's, you know, Hannah, you've got 20% women um, and, you know, 80% male. Kristen, I'm, I'm going to gather that you probably see something kind of similar to that, maybe a little bit higher uh, with women, but it's that gender piece that's driving me crazy. Personally, I gotta know. Is it hard to communicate with somebody who's from a different generation? How are you dealing with it? Yes. Or Hannah. (laughs) Take a pick. Yeah. Uh, yeah, um, uh, It is. Um, Also, the Gen Zs. I'm learning. I'm a millennial. I'm the learning how to communicate with the Gen Z's is even now I feel like an old person, like an old lady, like, Oh, I got to like understand how these kids talk. Uh, and <laughs> it's super funny, but, um, yes, and it, it, it is a struggle, but, um, I, I very f- more formal, sir, ma'am, Mr. And Ms. It's it, especially in, in the military. It's very, it's very formal. And so mm-hmm. being mindful of that and in a sense, like adapting to it, this is, um, something that I try to do in a, in a, communication like very much this is like my degree and my background is like meeting somebody where they're at and like how they want to be addressed and how they want to be communicated with and then slowly over time like making changes to that communication so that it aligns with like what I need from that person or like what they can receive from me in a way that is much more maybe relaxed and less formal um and uh yeah but yes it's a struggle but it's I think it's I think more often than not, it's, it's something that is workable. It just takes us some effort. And what about you, Kristen? Are, are you, have you found any other uh, biases working with uh, different, uh, different generations, you know, beyond the communication aspect, because that, you know, that, that is uh, definitely something that I think every generation grapples with is how to communicate with the other generations. But are there other things that you've come come across in your workplace that uh, is, you know, just central to one particular generation over another and, and, and they kind of posed to pose challenges to you that maybe, I don't know that, that, you know, if that it strictly is a generational thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, I will say up front, I don't think I work with a ton of generational diversity. I work with a lot of peers. Um, when I worked for the government, it was a little bit different. And if I'm kind of on some government engagements, there's definitely that different level of communication that we were talking about. Um, but I'm not I'm not sure if I've really had too many like hurdles up to this point outside of communication. I also think I personally... I'm a little bit more old school. Like I, I am typically finding myself kind of 
in the boomer time frame in terms of how I'm thinking maybe, or like <laughs> the way that I might want to manage teams and like get to goals and things like that. Um, so I hope I'm maybe a connection point between the two generations, but so far, not too many hurdles in my specific workplace. Um, but small, small frame in the whole scheme of things. Mm-hmm. So you're not, you're saying that you're not ageist then. So you're not like, oh, these, these gray hairs, they just don't get what we're doing down here. They don't understand what we're doing. No, it usually, it's usually something other than age that I feel like is (laughs) (laughs) putting some disconnect in there, but. Uh, A a, a quality that has to do with their ability to comprehend as opposed to any other genetic property or, or such. So. I think it's, I think it's more about having an open mind about things. It so, is. you it know, is. if if you can just kind of expand your mind and open, open your uh, mind to different new and new ideas, I think it's, uh, that's the best way to approach, uh, whether it's, whether it's age, whether it's gender, whether it's whatever nationality, whatever it's, it's all about having an open mind. Speaking of that, um, we have some, uh, I think maybe two minutes left before we need to shut things down. So do want to kind of open the floor to uh, Tracy, if you have any final questions or Hannah or Kristen, if you guys have any final thoughts, uh, Tracy, why don't we start with you and then we'll just do a quick little round table and we'll close it. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to thank Kristen, Hannah, and always Charlene. Thank you. This has been a fantastic discussion and it opened my eyes because I expected there to be a whole lot more, uh, the, those older folks are, they're not there. I expected something different. So you've opened my my eyes. Every time we do any of these uh, recordings or any of these shows, I learn something. So thank you for that bit of education. Why don't we close with asking you both the same question? 60 seconds. What advice do you have for your 10-year younger self? Kristen? Um, I'm a very sensitive person. Hopefully not into the way that it gets uh, in the way, but I wish I could have told myself 10 years ago that you can really use that to your advantage. There's empathy there, there's perspective. um, And it took me a long time to get there. So that's what I would tell myself and probably a lot of other younger people. (laughs) Thank you, Kristen. Hannah, how about you? Uh, Yeah, I'd probably tell my younger self to not take myself too seriously. Uh, I often think I need to be perfect at everything. And if I'm not, then obviously people see me as flawed and therefore I'm flawed. And rather it's, I'm, I'm just another, you know, they call Bozo on the bus. I'm just another person that's like helping to support an organization. So um, definitely not taking myself too seriously. Thank you, Excellent. ladies. Charlene? Yes. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Tracy. And thank you, Kristen and Hannah, for sharing your, your insight it, it, what a great conversation. I echo Tracy's sentiments. This is this has been very eye-opening. And I hope uh, there were some takeaways, lots of takeaways for the audience in today's conversation. Uh, but uh, thank you. Thank you guys for, for being our guest today. And want to thank the audience also for joining us. And uh, we have got lots more Tech Strong TV coming up. So stay tuned. <laughs>